Hear these words from Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and to the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, so that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who... When they hear all these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Will you pray with me? God Almighty, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, will be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength and my redeemer. Lord, as I preach your word this morning, may they not be my words that I say, may they be yours. I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead me to say the things that I ought to say, to not say the things that I ought not to say. Lord, and if I say something that I shouldn't, I pray that you would remove it from the memory of those here, bring it to nothing. Lord, if I forget something that I should say this morning, I pray that you would implant it on the hearts of those gathered anyway. Make your name great among us as we gather this morning, O oh God. In Christ's name, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we pray. Amen. So I would imagine uh, that pretty much everybody in this room is familiar with Charles Dickens, Charles, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. That's, not, that's a story we're familiar with. Getting a few nods. Uh, at the very least, even if that name doesn't ring a bell, you've heard of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Say, so why is he talking about this? It's August. This isn't a Christmas thing, I promise. I'm going to save Christmas for Christmas. But Ebenezer Scrooge is a famous miser. If you don't know what miser is, miser just means a Scrooge, right? Ebenezer Scrooge was a wealthy man. He, uh, he was a businessman and you know, sort of 17th century London, as, you know, Charles Dickens wrote a lot about. And he liked to penny pinch. 
He did not like to spend his money on, on you know, extraneous things like heat for his office. Spend his money on things like giving his employees, you know, Christmas Day off. Well, he did, but he, you know, he complained about it. He was a Scrooge. He was wealthy, but he didn't enjoy his wealth. He was wealthy, but he didn't share his wealth. He hoarded it all to himself. He kept it, lest he spend money on, you know, extra things like heat, things like that, and his money fly away from him. He hoarded it just to hold on to it. The sermon this morning deals with sort of a spiritual form of being a Scrooge. We've talked a lot over the past, you know, several, several months from the book of Deuteronomy about Israel and their place in, you know, as, as the special people of God. Israel received the law. They received the way and the path to God's blessing. But sometimes we think that it was okay for them just to kind of hoard it up to not share God's blessing with the nations. But that's not true. God didn't design Israel, God doesn't design us to be spiritual Scrooges. He has designed us to be a light to the nations. If we look in the scriptures, that's actually always been a part of God's plan for his people. Right, we've talked an awful lot about, you know, we always go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because that's kind of the central bedrock core of the story. Adam and Eve were given a command, right? Don't eat of the fruit of this tree. And in being given that command, they were given a choice between blessing and cursing, life and death. They chose to reject God's command. They said, God, we're not going to represent you on earth as you intended. We're not going to throw the serpent out of the garden as we should have. We're going to do what we want and try to grasp at the knowledge of good and evil our way instead of God's way. And so what does God do? He curses the ground and he drives them out from his presence. And as we read the first 11 chapters of Genesis... The story of Noah, the story of the Tower of Babel. It's the story of how humanity just keeps going farther and farther from God. They keep rebelling. They keep getting pushed out of God's presence, farther and farther away from the Garden of Eden. Until in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham. He actually says Abram because God hadn't changed Abraham's name yet. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to raise up a people from your children and your children's children. You're going to be a great nation and you guys are going to go in and inherit the land and, and be blessed there, really undoing what, God, or what happened in the, uh, the Garden of Eden when the ground was cursed and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the special place. Israel is going to be God's special people. They're going to be in the land and they're going to be a blessing. But Israel are not just going to receive God's blessing. Part of God's promise to Abraham was that Abraham and his descendants would bless the world. They're going to be blessed, yes. They are going to be God's treasured possession, but not God's only possession. The book of Isaiah says it this way, I am the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. That's God's intention for his people. And as the nation of Israel grew and they wound up in the land of Egypt and God brings them out, right? He brings them through the Red Sea, through the place of death to escape death. And he brings them out to Mount Sinai, the mountain where you meet with God. And he introduces himself to them. He says, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Love me. Keep my commandments. Walk before me. He says something else in there that we often miss, I think. This is from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Covenant, for those who forget, it's, it's a bible word that means relationship. Think of a marriage, a marriage covenant uh, is probably the closest thing we have to that today. Right? When I get married, it's not a contract, it's a, it's, a, it's a covenant. I covenant together with someone else in a relationship. I promise to love them, I promise to serve them, I take vows to do so. That's sort of the idea here. God makes a covenant with Israel, enters into a relationship with them. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God is not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God in that one little strip of land between Assyria and Egypt. He's the God of all the earth. He's the God of all peoples. And Israel's his treasured possession, but he's the God of all peoples. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest functions as a go-between, right? So if I was an ancient Israelite and I want to meet with God, I go to the temple, you know, I bring you know, a sheep or a, you know, a bull or something like that, whatever animal I'm going to sacrifice, and I go to the temple where I, you know, offer a sacrifice to God. And, you know, I bring it because the animal's pure and it's going to ascend to heaven and God's going to accept me as if I were pure. But I, when I get to the temple, I can't sacrifice that animal by myself. Right? King Saul got in trouble for this in the Old Testament. Right? He was waiting and waiting for one of the priests to show up because they were going to have a sacrifice. And then he just goes out and he sacrifices the animal itself. And it's, it's a big deal. Because you have to go through a priest. You have to go through a mediator. Someone in between you and God. Today, we are Presbyterians. We don't, we don't believe that we have priests today, right? Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's the one we go to in order to meet with God. But that's what a priest is. It's a go-between. So what does it mean that Israel is supposed to function as a kingdom of priests? Does it mean that they're supposed to hole up and kind of do their own thing and worship God in their own way? And No. It means that they're supposed to reach out to all of the nations. Because all the earth is God's. They're supposed to bring the nations in. Function as an intermediary. An in-between to bring the nations in, to bring them to God. There's supposed to be a kingdom of priests. As we read in our passage this morning, this is Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8. Keep these commands and do them. 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all peoples. When they hear these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was supposed to live in such a way that they received God's blessing, that they followed God's commands, they loved God as they should, and they, they were blessed because of it, because the law is the way to God's blessing. But not only that, the way they lived and what they showed off about their God was supposed to bring the other nations into the people of God. The people of God was supposed to get bigger and bigger and bigger until all the world came to worship and love and know him. There's a couple examples of this in the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys know the story of uh, Naaman the Syrian, but there was, kind of in the days of the kings of Israel, the story is in 2 Kings 5, there was a foreign general, uh, one of Israel's kind of frenemies-ish, depending on you know, the time of, you know, the time which you were reading this. Foreign general, and this foreign general gets leprosy, and he tries everything to try to be cured of it, goes to all the best doctors, right, all the people of influence, tries everything, still has leprosy. And he hears a rumor from one of his, one of his servant girls. She says, I hear that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you of these things. And we know that it's not the prophet who could heal, right? It's the God of Israel who, hears, who heals. But Naaman, because he heard about what God could do for him. It's, it's a vision of this passage in Deuteronomy that the nations are going to hear about what a great God that Israel serves, and they're going to come. And that's what Naaman does. He comes, and he listens to the prophet, and he bathes in one of Israel's filthy rivers, and he's cleaned in his body, and also in his soul, because he comes to worship the God of Israel. We have the story of Ruth, right? Ruth was also a foreign woman. She was a Moabitess. There's a book in the Bible named after, named after her. See, Ruth's kind of in-laws, they were Israelites, and they went to Moab during a time of famine, and their kids kind of married a couple Moabite girls. And then, this is a long story, and maybe we'll tell it some other time. But eventually, like, the dad dies and the two sons die. So there's just a mother-in-law and her two foreign daughters-in-law. And the mother-in-law is going to go back to where she came from. She's going to go back to her home because the famine was over. And there's this scene in Ruth 1 where they're going back and forth. She's like, you know, their mother-in-law says, says to them, you know, go, go back to your mother's house. You guys are still young. You can still, you can still get married, right? Life is not over for you. And the one sister leaves, but Ruth says, no, 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 no. Where you go, I will go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is supposed to be or will be my God. That's the way this is supposed to work. Israel living their lives in such a way that they draw people of other nations in to the family of God, and so that God's rule and reign covers the entire earth. Now we know from reading the Old Testament 
And we're going to kind of cover this a little more in detail in a, probably a couple of weeks. Israel did not obey the law as they should have. Israel was a failed example. That's not because they were Jewish. Let's not get anti-Semitic here. There's no reason to do that. It's because they were human. It's because they were descendants of Adam and Eve who needed their hearts to be changed by God in order to follow the rules that God gave to them. But they, they didn't live up to it. No human can. And as they went throughout their history, they kind of turned more and more inward. They started to get a pride in their cultural identity as the people of God. They said, we're the people with the sacrifices. We're the people with the temple. That's us. And I mentioned that prayer that some Jews would pray around the time of Christ. They would say, God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. Instead of being a light to the nations, they started to take their status as a God's treasured possession, and it got to their heads. They didn't live as they were supposed to. But when Jesus came, he broke down the barrier. And so today, in order to have fellowship with God, in order to be part of God's people, it's not something you don't have to be Jewish. All you have to do is have, have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be part of God's family. Jesus Christ, in his death, by his resurrection, broke down the wall of partition, as, as Ephesians 2 says. Right? There's no longer Jews and Gentiles. We are together one people of God. We don't have, you know, a central government as the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament, right? We don't all live in the same land as the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament. But we, the church, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who trust in him, we are the people of God spread out throughout the world. And we are called to be a light to the world, just as Israel was in the Old Testament. It's fascinating to me in the Old Testament that the prescribed way for Israel to influence the nations, it wasn't necessarily military force. Right? It wasn't political influence. It wasn't any of those things. It was simply living in the way of blessing. Keep these commands and do them. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you treat the poor among you fairly, if you live according to a biblical sexual ethic, value marriage, if you live in this way, then the people around you will see the way in which you live and they will come in in order to be part of the people of God. And that's how we are supposed to change the world as well. I talk a lot in here about how we are, we are the church. We are a little pocket of the new creation that is to come. Right? When we enter these doors, we're, we're leaving enemy territory, so to speak, and we are coming in and we are participating in a political gathering of a new kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and is coming. We are citizens of a new creation. And as we meet here, as we hear the word proclaimed, as we love each other as Jesus loved us, we're, we have the ethics and the culture, not of the nation around us, not of modern American people, 
but we have the culture and ethics of the kingdom that is to come. But when we leave here, when we go out to our homes, when we go home to our apartment building, and we have unsaved neighbors, when we have people that we encounter every day who don't know Jesus, we are scattered into the world, and that makes us different and unique from Israel, right? Because they just lived in one land. They had, like, their Israelite cities, and that's where they lived, and if they wanted to go talk to someone who was from another nation, right, if Naaman was going to hear about, you know, God, the God of Israel, there had to be an Israelite slave girl who went, you know, was captured and went to Syria. If Ruth was going to hear about the God of Israel, then, you know, her family has to go all the way out of Israel into Moab because they have food. But if our world is going to be shown the light of the gospel, then all we need to do is walk across the street in order to show God's love to the nations. Jesus said words that really resonate, I think, with a lot of people and that you'll hear even kind of in the secular world today. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. This is, this is what they're going to see and they're going to know that you're my disciples. Do you guys know what that is? Anyone familiar with this phrase? They'll know we are Christians by our love. That is the defining aspect. When people look at our lives, they will see that we are different because of how we treat each other. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We love our enemies as we love ourselves. As we interact with each other, we, we show forgiveness and love and grace. As Ephesians says, we do everything to maintain the unity that we have because of the bond of peace. We are united together. We love each other. We function not as individuals who come to church, but we function as a unity together, as the people of God, as a little pocket of the foretaste that is to come. And the thing that should characterize our lives is love for each other. And if we are going to love each other, that assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that we know each other. It assumes that we spend time with each other. It assumes that our interactions with each other are more than just what we have on Sunday mornings, are more than what we have the days we have fellowship dinners. We interact with each other regularly on a, maybe not daily basis, but on a frequent basis. That is how we show love to each other. It's really hard to show love to someone who you kind of nod at once a week. Maybe you have a brief conversation with them once a week. But as we live in community with each other, then we have an opportunity to love each other. As we live and as we function as the church, we, we reach out to the community, right? We, we try to spread our love, and we don't just keep it inside, but we show it to the world. We reach out to the physical needs that are around us. We reach out to the community because our beliefs, the gospel that we believe, isn't just a belief that God will save our souls. It's a belief that God is going to end all of the wickedness and injustice in the world. 
And so we reach out. That's why we give money to charity. That's why we fund missionaries. That's why we do these things, to reach out to the world and show the world that God loves them. And as we do these things, as we love each other, as we reach out to the world, we invite our neighbors into our homes, into our lives, so that God's vision for the nation of Israel is fulfilled in us. As people who don't believe in Jesus Christ see the ways that we live, if we are keeping God's commands, if we are truly loving our neighbors as ourselves, they will see that we are a different breed of people. They will say, what a great God their God must be. How great a God is that he hears their prayers when they call on him. What great laws they must have, because as they live them, as they love their neighbors, they experience blessing. And as we invite the people around us, the people across the street, the people in the lot behind us, the people next to us, as we invite them into our lives, they will see that we are different. There, there's a phrase um, that, that um, gets misattributed uh, to, I think, Francis of Assisi, um, but it's a, it, the, the phrase is, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Have you guys heard this before? A couple of you have heard this before. That's a bad saying. Let's just rip the band-aid off. That's not good. The gospel, necessary, the gospel needs words, but the gospel is not just words. The gospel has implications. So if we truly believe the gospel, then we will live our lives in such a way that invite other people into our lives, but it won't be just that. As we invite people in, as they see our good works, as they glorify God in heaven, we'll have the opportunity to tell them, you know, I'm a sinner, but I can be forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. We can share the gospel with them. And as we do that, we can see people brought into the family of God, the people of God that he has called. Because as he says in the Bible, all the peoples of the earth are mine. And we eagerly await the time when they are brought in. And we pray that God will use us to do it. We are the light of the world. And a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. May God enable us to be a city that is set on a hill. Will you pray with me?